I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the book of John, John chapter 19. After a face-to-face encounter with the one who bore witness to the truth, Pilate sent the Lord Jesus Christ out of his headquarters to be flogged. And it struck me, as I read that verse in John chapter 19, verse 1, that apparently Pilate was not a very good listener. Because in John 18, verse 37, Jesus told him, Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This morning, the title of the message is A Gospel-Centered Perspective. And as we move even closer to the cross of Calvary, I believe it becomes vitally important that we keep our bearings straight, that we're thinking biblically. It's vital that we maintain a perspective that honors God, one who trusts in His plan, a plan that envisioned the cross work of Christ all the way in eternity past. John MacArthur says it like this, The divine work of redemption continued on schedule. Christ's sovereign plan would be fulfilled in every detail, despite the opposition of his enemies, and even despite the abandonment of his friends. This morning, as we take one step further into the Gospel of John and move to John 19, once again, we get closer to the foot of the cross, the cross that has been foreordained before the foundation of the world. Would you stand with me as we read a rather lengthy section of Scripture, beginning in verse 9 of John chapter 19. This is the word of the Lord. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. 
So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic uh, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Will you pray with me? Father, as we stand among the people of God, uh, we are sobered uh, to read these words. Words that we will discover uh, were etched in uh, the fabric uh, of your plan from all eternity, but words that are nonetheless difficult to read, to learn of all that the Lord Jesus undertook for the glory of God and for um, the people of God. Father, I pray that you would grant us uh, sober minds and sober hearts on this day. I pray that our hearts would be uh, soft. I pray that our hearts would be ready to receive your word. God, I pray that you would help us to understand uh, that this was an event that happened in time and space. This is not a mere story. This is a, a historical event that really took place. And has a bearing on the way that we live our lives each day. And so I pray that you would enable us to see the relevance of your word. We do not strive to make the word of God relevant. We understand that it is relevant. And so may you strike us afresh with the power of the gospel. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would uh, do a work that would be a transforming work that you would help us to not only understand your word better, but that our hearts would be more inclined to serve you, to worship you, to obey you, not because of what we can do or who we are, but because of the gospel. And so come now and be with your people. May you encourage this dear uh, group of, of people, all for your honor and the great namesake of Jesus. Amen. The message this morning is a rather simple message. And really, the main thing I want to accomplish before we move on to a series of application is to have you see what happens to the Lord Jesus Christ just prior to his crucifixion. I want you to see four very important things, events that occur prior to the crucifixion of our Savior. And the first occurs, as we've already seen in the introduction in verse 1. The first thing that happens to Jesus before he is sent to the cross, before he is delivered over, as we will discover in verse 16, we see that he was flogged. Jesus Christ was flogged. I want you to imagine that you were numbered among the disciples. And I want you to imagine what would have been running through your mind and what is circulating in your heart. If you're like me, these words are difficult to read. These words are difficult to digest. This is a story that's hard to take in because 
of anyone who ever lived in all of human history, Jesus Christ was the one above all who did not deserve this treatment. I want to remind you that we're learning about the God-man, the one who has existed from all eternity, the one who came to live this life that none of us could ever live in our own strength, the one who died a, an absolutely brutal death, and this is a death that, that I deserve to die. This is a death that you deserve to die, and he did it for us. He did it for the glory of God. But the first event that we see in verse 1, once again, is that Jesus was flogged. And as you imagine what the disciples must have been thinking and the horror that must have run through their minds and slammed onto the shores of their hearts, I want to remind you that they should not have been surprised, which may come as a bit of a shock to you. You can see on the screen that Jesus warned his disciples. Jesus foretold of this precise event that would take place. He said back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 17, to his disciples, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. Jesus not only meant that the disciples would be flogged, but of course he knew that, that he would be flogged. You see, Jesus foretold the flogging that, that he would undergo. Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and who will be raised again on the third day. And so as you imagine what was running through the mind of the disciples, as you imagine what your frame of mind would have been, they shouldn't have been surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus said that this event would happen. In verse 1, I want you to pay close attention to that word flogged. The word flogged is not a word that we use in our everyday language. It comes from a Greek word that means this, and I... Whenever I think of flogging, you think, how graphic do you get? I talk to people from time to time, and perhaps you are one of those people who don't like to hear about the flogging. Most of you know that I have an aversion to blood. This morning it came up once again, as it usually does in conversations with my friends and some of the elders as we were praying for some of the people who have walked through very difficult times physically over the last several weeks. And the subject of blood came up. And I think it was Tom Junkmas that said, you're not doing very good, are you? I hear the word blood and I get queasy. And so some of us don't like to talk about the flogging. Some of us don't like to hear about the events of the crucifixion. It's, it's too hard to bear. But even though it's difficult, I think we do a great disservice to Scripture and to ourselves is if we pass over this matter of flogging. The word in the Greek means to beat with a whip. It means to chastise. It means to scourge. 
And the scourging or the flogging of Jesus in John chapter 19 verse 1 was the method of punishment that the Romans engaged in just before a victim was sent to be crucified. And of course, you know, the Romans not only had this, this fascination with flogging, is they would crucify hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in these days. This was the preferred method of punishment and torture. One writer says this about scourging, and I would urge you to brace yourself, and I'll do the same. Scourging alone was sometimes fatal. A Roman scourge was a short wooden handle with numerous long lashes of leather attached to it. Each leather strip had a sharp piece of glass or metal or bone or a hard object attached to the end of it. The victim would be stripped of all clothing, tied to a post by his wrists with his hands high above over his head, and he was virtually lifted off the ground. And the feet would be dangling, as it were, and the skin on the back and the buttocks completely taut. One of two scourge bearers, called a lictor, would deliver the blows. Skillfully laying the lashes diagonally across the back and the, the buttocks with extreme force. The force would, would hammer on the skin. And the skin would literally be torn away. And often muscles were deeply lacerated. It was not uncommon for the scourge wounds to penetrate deep into the kidneys or lacerate arteries, causing wounds that in themselves proved fatal. Some victims died from extreme shock during the flogging. Close quote. Well, when the Bible says in John chapter 19 verse 1 that Jesus was flogged, this is exactly what happened as the Lord Jesus Christ was strung up on this post and he was scourged, he was flogged just before he was led off to bear the weight of all our sin on the cross. Verses 2 to 7 tell us this. He was not only flogged, the Lord Jesus Christ was mocked. He was mocked. And in verses 2 to 7, we see several, several ways that this mocking took place. And this morning, I, I would hope that you would, you would hear this and you would absorb this at a, at a visceral level. I, my prayer would be that you would feel it, that in some respects you would taste it, that you would smell it, that you would, you would enter into to this arena of suffering that was all for the glory of God. Here we see that Jesus was mocked, and the first way that the soldiers mocked him was by placing a crown of thorns upon his head. They placed this crown of thorns on his head to, to mock his kingly claim. It was, it was as if to say, so you say you're a king, Here, here's your stinking crown, Jesus. And so they mocked him in that regard. It's important for us to understand a bit of the, the history here, and to know that several kinds of thorns, like the thorn on a rose, only bigger, they grow in Jerusalem even to this very day. And these thorns, uh, the thorns that were placed upon our Lord's head, were thorns that were likely two inches in length. Thorns that were, were barbed quills 
that would dig into our Savior's scalp and cause him intense pain. A crown of thorns was placed on his head. That was the first way the soldiers mocked him. There's another way they mocked him that also occurs in verse 2. You can see it for yourself. Is they placed a purple robe on his naked body. This robe was placed upon his back. Of course, purple representing regal majesty. An act once again that would mock the claim. For Jesus had said he was the king of the Jews. Now, I want you to think about this, to bear in mind that Jesus had already, as we've seen, been subject to this vicious act of slogging that had ripped open his back and no doubt left open wounds on his back. And there is little doubt that as they placed the fabric, this this purple robe on his back, it would would be placed on his back and then soldiers would, would pull at the fabric and as the blood had begin to coagulate would would stick to the fabric and they would pull the fabric and the wounds would be torn open fresh once again jesus received this crown of thorns and this purple robe as a means of of mocking his claim to be king verse 3 says that he also endured a physical beating in addition to the flogging, if, if being flogged or scourged isn't bad enough, verse 3, if you would look at it with me, says this. It says, they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they, notice this word, they struck him with their hands. They struck him with their hands. And this is where the, the Greek language, some people ask me, do I have to know Greek to know the word of God? And the answer is no, no, no. Please don't ever, no matter what anyone ever tells you, don't be, be fooled or get the impression that if I don't know Greek, I can't understand scripture. But here's the way I describe it is, is the Greek language. If you would imagine we're all watching black and white television You pick your favorite show, and we all know what that is, right? It's the Seahawks on Sunday afternoon. So here we are watching our our black and white Seahawks, and we all see the same Russell Wilson, right? We all see the same Pete Carroll, right? I often wonder if they ran out of gum, what what is he going to do? His life's over. We (laughs) We all see the same show on black and white. But then someone comes, someone purchases a a, a 90-inch flat-screen color TV, and they put it next to the black-and-white TV. We still see the same Russell Wilson, nimble as he is. We still see the gum-chomping Pete Carroll, but now it comes alive. Same characters, same football Same scenario, yet the color helps to emphasize what we're seeing. That's what the Greek language does. So when the Bible says in verse 3 that they struck him, and we go to the original and, and wonder, what does it mean to be struck? It means to be slapped, to be smacked in the face. That's the force of the Greek. It means to be whipped 
And so the passage suggests that the, the mob was striking Jesus with aggressive blows to his face and to his torso that caused him intense pain. He'd already been flogged with the crown of thorns around his head and the purple robe on his body. They continued to, to beat his weary body. I want you to see, however, that physical pain wasn't his only challenge. Jesus not only endured a physical beating, he also endured an emotional beating. And it's something that would be easy to overlook, and I, I, I want to encourage you not to overlook it. Because in verses 3 and verses 5 and verse 6, we see this. They cry out, as we've already seen, Hail a king of the Jews! <laughs> I think that's how it happened. When we read scripture, read it with, with emotion. Read it with imagination. Hail, King of the Jews. We don't want to do that. It's Hail, King of the Jews. <laughs> Who do you think you are? That's what Jesus was receiving. And then Pilate says, Behold the man. Right? Behold the man. Verse 6. Crucify him. Crucify him. And so the Lord Jesus receives this. He endures this physical beating, but he is also wrestling with, with being taunted and mocked and jeered upon. Something also happens in verse 7, where we see that he is mocked because they dispute his claim. Verse 7, if you read it with me, the Jews answered him, we have a law. They had many laws. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And so after mocking him with the crown of thorns and the purple robe and beating him up physically and emotionally, the Jews tell Jesus, listen here, the, the law demands that you die because you have claimed to be equal with God. And remember once again that Jesus was at that moment and is at this moment fully God and fully man. And so don't miss the significance here. And the way I would illustrate this is by asking you, has anyone ever disputed one of your claims? Have you ever shared something with someone and you fill in the blanks? I have been to this country. I have been to this concert. I met this man. I met this woman. I had this experience. And someone looked you in the eye and said, you are a liar. I've had that happen to me. And when you have experienced whatever the event is and someone says, I don't believe you, something, something deep happens inside of you. Would you raise your hand and let me know if you've ever had that happen to you? I just want to make sure I'm just not crazy. It's happened to several of you. There's something at a very deep level that, wait a minute, that actually happened to me, and you're telling me I'm a liar? Now remember, Jesus is fully God and fully man, and because he's fully man, he, he understands all that we experience. He is tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. And so the Jews in this story dispute Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. Worst yet, as I've indicated, they argue that based on their law, the penalty is the penalty of death. So we have the flogging. 
the crown of thorns, the purple robe, the the physical and emotional beating, the repudiation of Jesus' claim to be the Son of God, weighing heavily on his body and soul. Warren Wiersbe says this, the forces of hell were having a heyday in Pilate's Hall. And if you're like me and have an imagination, you can almost almost hear the reverberations of the demonic screams and groans and laughter. But that is not all that Jesus would face. He would also endure, as verses 9 to 11 illustrate, a time of interrogation. Jesus was not only mocked, he would go through... This period of interrogation. Verse 9. He entered the headquarters again and said to Jesus, speaking of Pilate, said to Jesus, Where are you from? And I don't know about you, but I, I love this next line. Jesus gave him no answer. He stood there with the tattered purple robe and the blood coming down his face from the crown of thorns, and he just stood there. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And here's where it gets really interesting, where Jesus does respond. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. It's a bit of a power play from Pilate's part. Don't you know that I have the authority to release you or the authority to crucify you? That word authority in the Greek means the the control or the power over someone. It literally means the right to judge. Jesus, do you understand that I have the right to judge you? And of course, Jesus Christ says that it is only because God the Father has granted you that authority. I want to remind you this morning that wherever you are in your life, that any kind of authority you have is a delegated authority. You ever thought about that? Go all the way to the President of the United States doesn't matter who it is. The president has authority, but it is a delegated authority primarily from God, but also from the people of this land. And so Jesus' words at this point, I believe, are, are dripping with irony. And one wonders if, if Pilate had any idea what was taking place in this scene. Jesus had just told him, That he had no authority unless it had been given to you or granted to you from above. And so the only way that Pilate could deliver Jesus to these religious authorities is if God the Father had sovereignly granted him the authority to do so. In other words, and this is what stood out to me probably more than anything in this story, that Pilate at this point unwittingly and unknowingly helps move forward the events of redemptive history. Have you thought about that? As hard as it is to see Jesus flogged and mocked and interrogated and made fun of, Pilate at this point helps to fulfill the will of God. 
Now, in addition, Jesus said to Pilate, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. A reference at this point to Caiaphas, the one who, as you know, had been plotting this whole time to have Jesus executed. What you need to understand this morning is that Caiaphas had a knowledge of the scriptures, unlike Pilate. Caiaphas had a knowledge of the scriptures and had been given, had begun, excuse me, been given every opportunity to examine the evidence. He had willfully closed his eyes and hardened his heart. He had seen to it that Jesus was not given a fair trial. It was a, it was a kangaroo, kangaroo court. And it was his associates who were inciting the mob to cry out, Let him be crucified. Pilate was a spiritually blind pagan, but Caiaphas was a Jewish man who once again had a knowledge of the scriptures. Therefore, as Jesus says, it was Caiaphas, not Pilate, who had the greater sin. The fourth thing I want you to see is that Jesus now in verses 12 to 16 is handed over to the chief priests. And there is a chain of events that unfolds beginning in verse 14. We read, behold your king, verse 15, away with him. Again in verse 15, the crowd screams, crucify him. And they have a a fidelity. They have a, a, a loyalty to Caesar. And they cry out, we have no king but Caesar. And they deliver him in verse 16. They handed him over to the authorities. Would you hold your finger in John chapter 19 and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. As you turn there, remember that we are reading a prophecy in Isaiah 53 that was over 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And I want you to gaze with me, if you would, at at several verses in Isaiah 53, keeping in mind the chain of events that we have just explored. Verse 5 of chapter 53, speaking of Jesus, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 7, he, that is Jesus, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 12, therefore, I'll divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Listen, yet he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors in John chapter 19 verse 16 we read these sobering words so he delivered him so Pilate delivered 
the God-man, Jesus Christ, over to them to be crucified. As we witness this horrifying scene of Jesus being like a, a lamb to the slaughter, which we have just read in Isaiah 53, our, our hearts, I hope our hearts are humbled and cut to the quick to see our Savior led to the foot of the cross. The event that I've already mentioned several times was an event that was secured in eternity past. This is an event that was, was cemented in eternity, in eternity past. And even though we know that he is fulfilling the plan of God, we are moved by the great length that Jesus went to in order to secure my freedom and my forgiveness. We are sobered and humbled when we think of all that Jesus went through to secure your freedom and your forgiveness. That if you have placed personal faith in Jesus, God will never hold you accountable for your sins. Why? Because Jesus bore all your sin on the cross of Calvary. He separates your sins as far as the east is from the west. He hides them in, in, in he buries them in the deepest of seas. He hides them behind his back. He forgets your sin. I love that. The omniscient God, the God who knows everything, including the hair on your head or the lack of hair on your head. He knows everything, yet he forgets my sin. If you ever confessed a sin, you pick the sin years ago. And you were convicted of that sin. God, the Holy Spirit, who resides in your heart, convicted you of that sin. And you, you went to God and said, God, I committed this sin Will you forgive me? I am so sorry. And you claim the promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that says, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of all your sin and to cleanse you of your unrighteousness. And then years down the road, five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road, that sin, and right, pops into your mind. Have you ever had that happen? The devil is called the accuser of the brethren. And it works something like this. Aunt Shirley, do you remember when you committed that sin back in 1973? Dave, do you remember that sin you committed back in 1991? Lenny, do you remember that sin you committed way back there in 1965? Justin, do you remember the sin you committed four years ago? AJ, do you remember the sin that you committed six months ago? And you say, God... These are sins that you've already gone to the, gone, you've gone to the mat. You've asked God to forgive you. And now, years later, or months later, or weeks later, they surface again. The accuser of the brethren says something like this. He gets right in your chest and goes, you are not a believer. How could a believer ever think that? How could a believer ever do that? And if you're like me, you start to you start to backpedal and think, oh no no, did, well, was I really forgiven? Did I did? I? Conniption fit comes to mind. And what are we called to do? We are called to remember that our sins are forgiven 
separated as far as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest of sea, hidden behind his back, and forgotten by a holy God. And at that point, that's when the accuser of the brethren needs to leave the room. We are free, we are forgiven, we are in Christ, we are seated in the heavenlies. Is anyone excited about this? Amen. I want to direct your attention to four principles that inform our faith and and build our faith and nurture our faith in days of uncertainty. Principles that will provide a much-needed, gospel-centered perspective. The first of which is this. The cry of the mob in this story is an accurate reflection of every unconverted heart. When they flogged Jesus, they did it because they did what came naturally to them. John Gershner, in a book he writes about Jonathan Edwards, is really parroting the the theology of Jonathan Edwards, and he makes these statements. They dislike God, and he's speaking of unconverted people. They dislike God because he is a holy God. He says they do not like God because he is a God of justice. He says they do not like God because he is an almighty God. They do not like God because because he is an omniscient God, for hereby he sees all their wickedness. These statements all describe the mob who flogged Jesus and mocked Jesus and interrogated Jesus and treated him horribly. Romans 3 agrees with these statements where Paul says, No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths of ruin or misery and the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the angry mob, and this is every unconverted person on this planet. And this is also every unconverted person in this room. Can you see yourself standing among the mob, crying out for the crucifixion of Jesus? Kill him! Don't you know the laws? He made himself equal with God. He must die. I want to challenge you, if you're here and you have never turned from your sin and and turned to the Savior, that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. The one whom you have been directing your hatred to calls you to believe on him. The Lord Jesus Christ beckons you to believe. There's a second thing I want you to see. Is that their condemnation of Jesus, as we've already seen in part, was part of God's redemptive plan. You recall that Jesus foretells what will take place. Once again, he said that I'm going, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and raised on the third day. Look how Jesus warns the disciples. He tells them, 
that he will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, that they will condemn him to death, that they will deliver him to the Gentiles, that he will be mocked and flogged, all of which we have discovered in John chapter 19. And after all of these events occur, Jesus will be crucified. He will, hung on, he, he will be hanged. He will, he will hang on the cross for our sins. And I can't help but wonder if I were one of the disciples and as Jesus foretold these events, I would likely think to myself, no, no, I love you. Why? Why, Why, Jesus? But we see here that Jesus is obedient to the Father, that their condemnation of Jesus was all part of, of God's redemptive plan. On the one hand, the kangaroo court that I referred to a moment ago, where Jesus has tried and perhaps the most unfair trial in all of human history. But on the other hand, we see that this chain of events is all necessary for God's will and for God's plan to come to pass. Here's where it gets real personal. I want you to think about, think about an unpleasant event in your life. I'm sure none of you can surface anything think about something that has happened to you that has has been painful over the last week over the last month over the last several years over the last half of your life this story clearly illustrates how jesus condemnation was part of god's redemptive plan and the reasoning is something like this if the suffering of our savior helps to fulfill the plan of god how much more Do the unpleasant or evil events in our lives help fulfill what God intends for us? Because we all embrace the great truth of Romans chapter 8 that tells us that God works all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's something I have to remind myself of all the time. Of course, the Baptist Confession of Faith, the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, says it this way. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Why did it happen, you ask? Because God decreed that it happened. The suffering of Jesus then reminds us to maintain perspective on this side of eternity. Can you relate to this? Am I the only one in this conundrum to maintain God-centered, gospel-centered perspective on this side of eternity? And so Paul the Apostle reads these words, and these were the last words I heard my late uncle Recite as he sat in a wheelchair at the church he pastored for many, many years in the Bay Area. He uttered these words. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're fleeting, they're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Third, I want you to see that the sovereign control of God should now bring comfort to our troubled souls. Once again, in the Baptist's confession of faith, the authors write, God, the good creator of all things, In his infinite power and wisdom doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things. From the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence. To the end for which they were created according to his infallible knowledge. And the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise and the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. That's a lot. Remember this. God created all things and God sustains all things. Nothing is amok in the universe. He's got it. He's got this. All things are under God's control. Finally, would you see with me that the resolve now of Jesus in this story remains unmoved, totally unmoved, even in the midst of horrifying pain and suffering. I hope you find Christ's example helpful. I hope you find Christ's example encouraging. And Peter writes about this in 1 Peter 2. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Listen, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. May I encourage you today to never take the gospel for granted. To never grow tired with with hearing the old, old story. To never grow tired of hearing the simple message of the gospel. I confess to you, and this is a confession I've never shared with anyone ever. You're the first. When I was about eight years old, I remember we would go to our, it would, Ken, it would be like Jam when I was a little kid. It was called Lively Lambs, and I thought it was the dorkiest name I'd ever heard of. Lively Lambs. Jam, that's the name right there, right? That's not the confession. So I guess it's two confessions. But I remember, I remember one day thinking, Jesus loves me. We sing it with me. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. There's no 
so I'm eight, nine years old. We sang that song, I think, every time. And I remember one, one day we were singing, and I thought, Jesus loves me this, I know. This is a stupid little kid song. And I thought that for weeks until one day it had to have been the Holy Spirit pretty much went like this and said, listen here, son. That's the most profound truth you're ever going to hear. There's a famous theologian from Germany and they asked him, what's what's the most incredible theological reality you've ever heard of? And they thought they were going to get this long dissertation that no one would understand with nine syllables in every word. And he lowered his paper and said, oh, that's easy. The most profound theological principle I've ever heard is this. Jesus loves me. This I know. And so that's a sin when I was just a young boy that I repented of. Now I love the song. Thank you so much for singing it. That Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Let us never take the gospel for granted. Let us never take the the simplicity and the profundity of The fact that Jesus loves us. May we never take that for granted. This gospel-centered perspective reminds us who we were apart from grace. We were rebels. We were without hope. We were without God in the world. We were slaves to sin. The gospel-centered perspective reminds us that God executes his will, his sovereign will, through the Evil, free decisions of his creatures. Have fun with that at lunch. It reminds us that he's in control of every event in human history. It reminds us that Jesus is a faithful Savior who who willingly bore the sin of every person who would ever believe. As we close this morning, I want to leave you with four basic gospel challenges Things to remember, things to put on the refrigerator, things to put in your car, to put on your dash, to put on your desk. Four gospel challenges. One, remember all that Jesus accomplished on the cross. To learn about it, to love it, to cherish it. And in the weeks ahead and after Christmas, we will continue to explore John chapter 19, and we're going to stand at the foot of the cross, and we're going to remember together what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Secondly, will you commit to resting in the salvation that is yours in Christ? It is not unusual for Christ followers to ignore this principle. Is like me, they have these moments of having fits or worrying, or wondering, or I wonder if I'm really saved. It's time to rest in the salvation that's yours in Christ. I have a dear friend who struggled for years with this particular point. I don't know when it was I trusted Christ. I don't know, I don't know if he's Lord. I don't know if I'm following him. Well, this is a guy I know as a Christian. No question. And he got really hung up on, when was it? When was it? I want to know the exact moment. And one day I said to him, I named him my name, and I said, the date doesn't matter. What matters is, do you believe Jesus now? He said, oh, I believe Jesus now. Then rest 
in the salvation that is yours in Christ. Number three, may I encourage you to rejoice knowing that your name is written in the book of life. Rejoice knowing that your name is written in the book of life. Some of you have great big smiles on your face. And that is what this point is meant to do. This should encourage you. This should brighten your day. This should thrill you to know that if you are following Jesus, if you have turned from your sin and you have trusted in Jesus' completed work on the cross, you can rejoice knowing that your name is written in the book of life. Finally, may I encourage you to revere the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you make it your life's aim to to worship him, to serve him, to be devoted to him? To walk, to run, as we talked about today in Veritas, all the way to the celestial city. Because we're all on a journey. We all have struggles. We're all wrestling with sin. But we all are heading north. Thank you. We're all heading for the celestial city. And it will be a battle all the way to the end. Closing, I want to tell you a story about an older gentleman, really old, who sat down with a young man. And the young man said, oh, sir, I just wish I could be like you and not ever struggle with temptation again. (laughs) And the guy's like, let me tell you something, Sonny. You don't want to know what I struggle with, right? We're all in the sanctification process. And it indeed is a process, but... We can bank on this promise that if you are a follower of Christ, that God will conform you to the image of his son. The Holy Spirit relentlessly pursues the people of God so that they are transformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. May our lives on this day. May our lives for the rest of our days be an overflow of worship. May every word and every action, may everything we say and do be informed by the gospel. Because we, as the great hymn says, we are loved by Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would uh, saturate Christ's fellowship with the gospel. God, I ask that the gospel would renew our perspective. I pray that the gospel would remind us who we are in Christ. That we would remember that we have not only been saved, that we have not only been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but we are sanctified by faith alone as well. That we are not sanctified by what we do or what we don't do. We are sanctified by faith alone. And so God, as we make our way to the celestial city, as we are fellow pilgrims, may you give us the courage and the grace and the ability and the inclination, not only to make it there by grace alone, but to help our fellow travelers every step of the way. May we be a community at Christ Fellowship that is a a caring community, an encouraging community, a nurturing community, 
And even when a a brother or sister falls into sin, that we would come alongside, as Galatians 6 describes, that we would would be as a a fisherman who, who mends the nets, that our desire would be to restore that brother or sister, that we would be encouraging even in the admonition. So, God, may uh, you do this mighty work of grace. May we be faithful, knowing that it is Jesus who went before us as the faithful one and entrust everything, our hopes, our dreams, our longings, and our desires to the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life on the tree for our sins. Now, God, we uh, come to your table. We come to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember uh, these two elements, the, the bread that represents the body of Jesus and the cup that represents his blood. May it be a special time of worship. God, remind us that we will never be satisfied apart from Christ. It is in Christ alone that we not only find our salvation, it is in Christ alone that we are, are truly satisfied, where we find meaning in life. And so may you use this time as we sing this song and and partake of these elements out of obedience to Jesus. Make it a special time of worship, all for your honor and glory. Amen.